Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, the cutest member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Sorry, Overdose Podcast, that title belongs to us. I'm Shane Garretson. You darn right, Cal Vandegrift. I'm Mickey Ferguson. I'm Ivan Stewart. Today, we're giving an update on two novel treatments for COVID-19. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Our listeners may remember that in our first ever episode, all the way back in January of 2020, we became the world's leading podcasters on COVID-19. We covered it before it was even named. At that point, it was just the novel coronavirus. You guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It wouldn't get the name SARS-CoV-2 for another few weeks. We released our episode just four days after the first international case reported in Thailand. Since those early days, things have moved fast, changed a lot, and our lives will never be the same. We haven't covered COVID-19 in a while. It's been almost six months since we covered the alleged infertility associated with the mRNA vaccines. And a lot has happened since then. There's been a slew of updates to the vaccine information from the CDC. It feels like almost weekly some new information comes out, uh, either about the new circulating strains or vaccine efficacy information. We're not really going to talk about the vaccine information because the CDC can do a much more effective job explaining that kind of stuff. Today, we're going to be discussing some novel treatments for COVID-19 and discuss their mechanisms and efficacy. Two treatments specifically, ivermectin and phenofibrate. Have you guys heard anything about those two treatments? Yeah, but not for COVID. I mean, (laughs) ivermectin is an antiparasitic. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, I definitely heard about the ivermectin thing. And when I went on rotation over the summer at a little community pharmacy, they, they couldn't keep it on the shelves for a little while. The phenofibrate, I, I hadn't heard about that in association with the coronavirus recently. Yeah, phenofibrate's really new. Ivermectin's been circulating for a really long time, actually, as far back as um, I think the uh, April after the outbreak, people were talking about ivermectin. And then it kind of fizzled out. But anyway... First, let's talk about phenofibrate. Phenofibrate is a prodrug of phenofibric acid, and it lowers cholesterol levels by activating PPAR-alpha, or peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor alpha, not to be confused with PPAR-gamma, which is the target of thiazolidine dions, or TZDs. Phenofibrate upregulates lipoprotein lipase, good old LPL, and makes the body synthesize more HDL, which is the good cholesterol that you can usually only get from Cheerios. In a study performed by the University of Birmingham, UK, clinical doses of phenofibrate showed a reduction of infection by up to 70%. It showed significant reduction to viral load and to the number of infected cells in vitro. This wasn't a study in people. As of the recording of this episode, two randomized clinical trials are underway with the University of Pennsylvania, shout out to the uh, HQ of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. So... Has there been any sort of coincidental cases of people getting COVID-19 who are simultaneously on treatment for dyslipidemia with phenofibrate and looks into them that wasn't necessarily a study to cure it, but rather they just happened to be taking it? Right. That's a really good question. And there has been some tentative data looking at that stuff, but we don't have any idea what 
the cause of the reduction in illness might be. However, some people theorize that it's related to an increase in sulfatides, which is a detergent that's actually upregulated by the biphenofibrate as well. And that is just like a, a, a very loose theory. It supposedly modulates viral entry, but it's it's just a loose theory. And there it's um it was noted to be in this, I don't think I have this in the notes. It was noted to be higher levels in patients with lower levels of disease. They had lower disease and higher sulfatides. So it's just correlation, not necessarily causation, but there is a link between the sulfatides and the phenofibrate. So then they're thinking maybe there's some kind of crossover there, but it's kind of hard to say at this point. What, what normal purpose do sulfatides serve in the human body aside from viral infection? Like, what do they do normally? I really don't know. That's a good question. They're just like a, like a chunky fat molecule, like they're like an internal detergent, whatever you might need those for. I really, I'm not really sure, honestly. Okay, Ivan caught me unprepared with this question, but I thought it was valuable enough to look into further. Sulfatide is a major physiological component of the myelin sheaths, which is a lipid-rich shield that surrounds nerve cell axons to protect them and increase the rate of action potentials. It also serves functions in various other physiological processes, including protein transport, cellular movement and adhesion, immune cell differentiation, and is implicated in neurological pathologies when it's out of balance, either a deficit or a surplus. I'd have to imagine that that was the, the coincidence of someone taking phenofibrate and then also not having as severe of a COVID-19 infection. That's gotta be the only way they discovered that. There's not just like happens, you know, just happened by chance that they were thinking, oh, phenofibrate, that's good. that could help with Yeah, I COVID. mean, surely that, that something like that had to have turned somebody onto this because never in a million years would I have been like, that sounds great for viral infection. Right. Would yeah. I have just thought of that off the cuff? Yeah, definitely not. The tough thing is, though, there's a lot of crossover with people with hypercholesterolemia and hypertension. And hypertension itself is a risk factor for severe disease because of the implications with ACE2, and they tend to have really, really severe cases of COVID-19. Wasn't there, I know we can't get into this thing totally because that'll derail the, the start of things, but wasn't there some suggestion that maybe ACE inhibitors might play some role in reducing lung damage there, in COVID-19? Did that ever get like carried through? Not really. I think they ultimately determined that there, that wasn't necessarily a factor. We've just identified okay. ACE2 as the entry point. Okay. for COVID-19 viral entry. But it's not the yeah. only receptor that's involved. Well, yeah. ACE inhibitors don't affect too much of ACE2. Right. That's a completely different thing. So, Right. There was also... Nah, we'll, we won't talk about that. I was about to say... It's, a little, wanna... it's a little off the we, rails. We've I talked about this in a previous COVID update yeah. whenever yeah. we did it. Mm -hmm. About the, the, um, the other receptor. But Maybe anyway. a bit in the infertility one, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's jump ahead. So that's, that's really all there is on phenofibrate. I don't have any other information. Those two oh. RCTs are ongoing and... Hopefully when those are completed, we'll have some more information on it. And I'm really looking forward to, to seeing those results. One of the other theories is that it has a inhibitory effect on cytokines involved in ARDS, which wouldn't do much to decrease viral load, but may be an additional benefit. Thus far, we are still waiting on those RCTs to complete, and then we'll have some more information. There's a lot more research to be done. Perhaps we'll do a follow-up when those studies complete. I mean, if it does have a significant use in cytokine reduction, I don't think it exists like as a therapeutic benefit because right. I've never seen phenofibrate used as part of a inflammation reduction strategy or an immunosuppressant. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm I mean, hopeful, but I'm not very optimistic that this yeah. is going to be any sort of conclusion. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's something to keep an eye on. So let's talk about ivermectin. 
Ivermectin has been on the market for about 40 years and is used to treat a host of parasitic infections, from head lice to scabies to intestinal roundworms, and it's even used commonly in veterinary medicine for heartworm. Here's a list of the other um, parasites it treats, just because I think that the, the names for parasites are amazing. They are so ridiculous. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to pronounce these correctly. This is just some random parasites that ivermectin can treat. Trichostrongolus, usophagostomum, strongoloides, dictocallus, and my favorite, <laughs> That's awesome. my favorite, homuncus. <laughs> homuncus. That, that reminds me of like homunculus, like a tiny unformed mutant human being. <laughs> homunculus is so terrifying. Anyway, so, okay, so those are some of the random, I just thought those were fun. I wanted to shoehorn those in here somewhere. Horned they were. Yeah. In our world, we may be more familiar with its topical form under the brand name Sklice, which until recently was pretty commonly prescribed treatment for head lice. It was approved by the FDA to go over the counter in 2020, and I personally have not seen it since. Have you guys seen it? Or Calvin, have you seen it? No, I don't think I've ever seen this one. The only time I've ever seen ivermectin was in scabies or in vet medicine. Sklice was really common up until October of 2020 when it went OTC and then it has just completely vanished. I found that on some like random website, a single bottle was $330. Dang. Which That's gotta be COVID yeah. pricing. Nowhere near what it's like actually worth. Do people know they can just go to Tractor Supply and like buy this built for pigs? Don't tell them that. Oh, okay. Like we you... don't need to be circulating that information. Okay, well, fair. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but... if they're not smart enough to do the research on ivermectin, they're probably not smart enough to go to a It's farm already store. happened at least three times during this pandemic that someone it's, has yeah, made up some BS. I'm um, so done. Yeah. Anyway, so I looked into it briefly to see maybe where Sklice has gone, but I couldn't really find anything conclusive. I speculate that it's either in a weird marketing and legality limbo, even though it was approved by the FDA for the RX to OTC switch on October 27th, 2020, two days after my birthday. Happy birthday to me. Belated. Happy birthday. Thanks, October. Or perhaps they've allocated manufacturing resources for pandemic response. I think that's totally plausible. Yeah. And Although I really have no idea. If you're listening and you know where Sklice is, let us know. I'm curious. And, and the reason that this is so universally effective on so many different kinds of parasites, if I remember right, is because it's very generally attracted to the binding to and shutting down of invertebrate like glutamate channels, right? Mm -hmm. I think yeah. I remember You're reading stealing that. stealing my like next paragraph. Like, oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> bro, that's this. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that, is, that is exactly the mechanism. Sweet. Yeah. I was going to talk about that like a couple paragraphs down, but let me, let me get to it. Okay. <laughs> I got out of line. <laughs> no, you're good. Information began circulating as early as March of 2020, claiming that ivermectin could be a possible treatment for COVID-19. A couple of headlines here and there speculated, and some information began circulating online. However, these articles were quickly overshadowed and outnumbered by the rapid and uncontrollable spread of a misinformation about hydroxychloroquine. We've talked about HCQ before. We're not going to talk about it again. Ivermectin. What's it for? It's for parasites, for nematodes, which are roundworms. It binds to glutamate-activated chloride channels in nerve and muscle cells. Do you guys remember what the function of glutamate is in human nerve cells? It's excitatory. Exactly. Yeah. It's the brain's go-go juice. What's the red light or the stop-stop juice? GABA. Yes, GABA, also known as... Gamma aminobutyric acid. Heck yeah, man. You're going to ace whatever class. I'm so glad Ivan came. Yeah. <laughs> I talked about the GABA and the glutamate in I mean, like I, the last episode. I would have eventually gotten to GABA. Yeah. 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 They're, they're, I guess, opposite 
not really, excitatory and inhibitory. There's other, the main excitatory and inhibitory neural transmitters, essentially. Loosely, I just, yeah. I just yeah. Can't Depends stop. on what part of the brain, too. I just can't stop thinking about yo gabba gabba whenever I say it. The yeah. That was interesting. So ivermectin is kind of cool because instead of blocking the activity of the chloride channels, it actually activates them, causing hyperpolarization and paralysis. The nematodes then die either of starvation or by being neutralized by the body's own immune system. Ivermectin is given by mouth, topically or by injection. It does not readily cross the blood-brain barrier, except for in turtles, if you were wondering. Really? Fun wow. fact. That, that is a fun fact. What's the difference between like a turtle's blood-brain, but do we know that? It's probably uh, somebody just does. Like, looser. It's just like, yeah, come on in, man. Maybe. I mean, they're, they're generous. Well, I mean, no, that's frogs. Never mind. I was going to say something about frogs. I like frogs. About, yeah, frogs are cool. Like I, how their skin is just like an open membrane and they yeah. store all their fat and those weird banana-shaped like, bodies in their abdomen. Okay, so you're the uh, the cat ovary guy <laughs> and now Ivan is the, the frog fat storage guy. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Have you opened, have you done like a frog? and Have I ever opened up a frog yeah. just yeah, like freely? Seventh no, grade. Not like, <laughs> yeah, that's what, do you remember those... No, I don't remember that. Yeah, because I I remember when I was in was anatomy like in like high years school, ago. they had well, that's the like the one thing that I remember specifically about it is they had these long yellow like fat bodies in their abdomens because they couldn't store fat in their skin because that would interfere with the diffusion of oxygen and like water across their their membrane. So that's I right. I was really weirded out when I opened up that frog. That's pretty cool, actually. That's pretty interesting. Mickey, do you have any fun facts about animal physiology? Uh, when I was in high school, we dissected minks. And minks? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, Cruella DeVille. Yeah, tell me about Jeez. it. They were already skinned, so we didn't oh. get any of the fur. Oh. But the weirdest part was we only had, like, this was a tiny school. So the, the anatomy and physiology class had, like, seven people in it. And they split us into guys and girls groups. The girls were done in, like, half an hour. And the teacher walked over and was like, you just mangled this thing. Like, what are you doing? And the guys are over there, like, poking at it, being like, oh, it's so gross. <laughs> it's just such a complete role reversal. It was so funny. That's fine. <laughs> so if uh, ivermectin has been making headlines again recently because a handful of studies from albeit small groups of patients are showing that it has a generally positive effect on decreasing viral load and speeding up the time to viral clearance. One particular trial in Bangladesh showed that a five-day course of ivermectin showed an average reduction to 9.7 days until viral clearance, as compared to 12.7 days in the placebo arm. It should be noted that there was a combination arm of a single dose of ivermectin and a five-day course of doxycycline, which did not show a statistically significant reduction in viral load. I don't know why they opted for doxycycline. I didn't look into it because it clearly didn't work. Well, yeah, I think but it's no, doxy I've never seen think it's for COVID. Yeah, um, I haven't either. Uh, until Bangladesh. <laughs> I don't know why you guys laughed at that. It's just the name of the country. No, I mean, there's just something funny about, I don't know, the fact that the Bangladeshis are on the forefront of using things that don't really make sense for viruses. <laughs> there's just something kind of funny about that. I don't know why. Are they Bangladeshis? Is that what you call the people from Bangladesh? What uh, would you call them? Bang, bang, bang guys. <laughs> uh, could any of the four of us point to Bangladesh on a map? Yes. It's like, I don't think it's I east could. of India from a distance. Yes. I mean, I would have pointed somewhere like near Pakistan, India, but I don't yeah. know exactly well, where it used to be East Pakistan, right? I don't know. Mm. Pretty sure it used to be East Pakistan. And then Pakistan was like East Yo. Pakistan. So it's closer to India than it was split. 
because they right, no, India we'll exiled see. all their Muslims. It's a really long story. It really sucks. I mean, the, the interesting thing about Pakistan is that it wasn't ever supposed to be like a Muslim <laughs> state, but it just turned like yeah, Pakistan, it kind of turned into that. I, I don't. We don't need to do it because Pakistan has a really complicated <laughs> history. It's going to swiftly become more two seconds. Oh, we absolutely. just off the cliff. <laughs> All right. I'll so stop talking about going that blooper reel. <laughs> um, so I'm going to leave this in the episode. So this trial was 72 patients. Pretty small RCT. Yeah. Bigger than the ones on the International Space Station, but... Hard to call that an RCT. Yeah, but not by much. Yeah, exactly. And a few other trials here and there, they're running into similar issues. They're really small. 50 patients here, 60 patients there. You get the idea. A meta-analysis performed by the American Journal of Therapeutics of 18 RCTs of ivermectin, RCTs is randomized controlled trial for our listeners who aren't aware, have indicated statistically significant reductions in mortality and time to clinical recovery. They're consistently showing that it works. The antiviral properties of ivermectin have been identified as early as 8 BC, or before COVID, which is roughly 2012. The effects include influenza, Zika, HIV, dengue, and now SARS-CoV-2. It can slow replication and interfere with viral entry. Do you guys remember what two receptors are involved with cell entry? We already mentioned one. What's the other one? The primer. Mm. For COVID? Mm-hmm. I don't know. We talked about it in the one episode. Is it the temptress? It is. It's the temptress. The uh, TMPRSS2 receptor. It primes the SARS-CoV-2 virion, which then allows it to hit ACE2 and then be pulled into the cell, essentially. It like cleaves something. So this is just kind of analogous to like neuraminidase in like an influenza virus? Like Kinda. it's the thing that just yeah. breaks everything open and then like we're in? Except it's on our own cells. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you were... Yeah, it's on our own cells. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. There's just been so much information about all this that I can barely keep any of it straight. I know. Yeah. It's it's a ton. It's insane. It's evolving all the time. And not only that, but like there's also completely BS information out there about it that looks legit until you look at the journal and it's like the Journal of Moon Medicine, Volume 38. And it's like... Well, annals, on, well, annals of woo-woo. Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene's Twitter. I don't even know who that is. Good. Okay, so speaking of journals, Nature.com describes ivermectin's activity against SARS-CoV-2 as blocking the, this is going to get kind of in the weeds. Okay, as blocking the nuclear transport of viral proteins. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say something that I realized there was no reason to interrupt you for it because you're probably about to, okay. I just get excited. <laughs> Meaning that the virus tries to enter the nucleus where it can block the release of interferon, which, as we remember from immunology, are like the cell's air raid siren, essentially. When it's attacked by a virus, it releases interferon, and the interferon alerts local cells to increase their antiviral response. SARS-CoV-2 actually stops that from happening normally. Ivermectin blocks the transporter into the nucleus, preventing SARS-CoV-2 from gaining access. Thus, enabling the interferon release to continue and heighten the antiviral response from neighboring cells. It's completely different and separate from the proposed mechanisms of hydroxychloroquine or colchicine. Let's talk about the history of ivermectin. Ivermectin is isolated from the fermentation of a species of the genus Streptomyces, which might sound familiar, which is also where we get all of the drugs that end in mycin, neomycin, phosphomycin, streptomycin, plus a few others. This is something that's always interesting to me, and it's ever-present in the microbiology world. Nothing creates better antibiotics than bacteria. 
Same goes for fungus, too. Fungi and bacteria and parasites are in a constant war that's been raging for two billion years, when the first autotrophic organisms emerged from the primordial ooze and commenced on a journey of divergent evolution that spanned millions of years, persisted through apocalyptic extinction events, and eventually culminated in parking tickets and fruit punch-flavored Oreos. <laughs> a large-scale war was always broiling bitterly in the background. And what was the goal of these conquests, you might ask? The same goal of every war, resources. Bacteria, fungi, and parasites have all exhibited the ability to use chemical weapons against their enemies, even weapons specific to different species. Amidst the great overarching campaign between the three factions, there's abundant infighting. Bacteria are in a constant war over your intestinal real estate, and fungi and parasites do the same thing. You may have noticed that there's a fourth type of pathogen that I have yet to mention here. Viruses. Having eluded human observation for nearly three centuries longer than bacteria, viruses are even still much a mystery and topic for debate. And I'm not even talking about COVID here. Virology has been a hot topic for a few decades, with even the simplest question, are they alive, being heavily scrutinized and debated amongst the brightest minds in science today. Let's take a pause here and consider this very question. Are viruses alive? The answer is no. I, I tend to lean towards no because they they have to use even the machinery of another organism to procreate. Okay. Like it's not like a parasite where they need to be lodged in something to procreate. They just don't even have like the proper machinery for it a lot of times. That's really fair. I mean, their sole goal in life, if you want to call it that, is pure replication. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't necessarily think they're alive. But then, but you could make a case for it. I think you can. I think you can make a case for it. So biological requirements for life are something that has the capacity to grow, metabolize, respond to stimuli, adapt, and reproduce. Viruses can do some of these things. Does that mean that we need to change the categories of, of what's alive and what's inorganic? Would you define them as inorganic? Certainly not. No. I don't think so. No. DNA is there RNA. some kind of, yeah, they've got DNA or RNA. They do replicate within host cells and they do in some ways respond to stimuli, wouldn't you say? Certainly. Yeah. Mm, the individual viruses? No, but Virions? they are subject to, they are subject to um, selective breeding. They you don't think that they in any way respond to stimuli like no. chemotaxis? I mean, if that's, that's considered a response to stimuli, response yeah, to yeah, stimuli yeah. then like my engine responds to stimuli. When I give it more air and and, and gasoline it goes faster like that's a response to stimulus raise a really interesting question are engines alive next episode on let's farm <laughs> is your car engine alive I'm, like i'm like i can't now i'm just thinking of like howl's moving castle yeah that was an awesome that movie. was a cool movie yeah you guys ever seen christine the stephen car king? the yeah, stephen the king yeah, i read car. the book i think I think all yeah. the answers we need are in there. Actually. Yeah, I think you're right. Or the one Stephen King movie that was like the the big rigs that were alive. Yeah. yeah oh, well, he directed that movie. Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. yeah, Maximum Overdrive. That movie was it was fantastic. So dumb, but so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He directed that movie and he was like on cocaine the entire time. Well, I mean, Stephen King. Okay, no, we can't do this if we start talking about Stephen King. <laughs> Do you remember that episode where we got off track and started talking about American Horror Story for like ten minutes? Oh yeah, and Mickey was lost as yeah. hell. Yeah. We can't, we can't do that again. Season three sucked. <laughs> Back on. Okay, no, Coven we're not starting this awful. again. Okay. Amidst the chaos of a two billion years war, where were viruses? This is just conjecture, 
but I think they've been there all along, fighting for their own resources, mutating and advancing to develop their own bioweapons, and vice versa. Fungi, bacteria, and parasites have been doing the same thing. Bacteriophages, as we know, are viruses that have long been observed infecting and replicating within bacteria. And recently, we've observed viruses infecting various parasitic protozoa as well, including Trichomonas vaginalis, I hate that one, that one's so hard to say, and Giardia lamblia, as well as a few others I haven't heard of, so I didn't write them down. There's also viruses that infect fungi called mycoviruses. I found documents and studies detailing the interactions between viruses and bacteria dating back as far as 2 BC, or roughly 2018. We could discuss the intricacies of microbiological warfare for hours, but we're here to talk about just one, ivermectin, which, reminder, was isolated from a bacteria in the 80s, about 40 BC. So the journal from 2 BC is titled Viruses, and despite its confusing name, they mostly discuss viruses. Some of the bacteria and viruses interactions include reduced viral shedding. Okay, so I know the joke like threw, threw me off the rails, but here we go. So this is a description of some of the interactions between bacteria and viruses. And we don't know exactly what's causing these interactions, whether it's like the release of chemicals or some kind of stimuli that they're exerting on each other. But the results are really varied. And here's a list of some of them in, in no particular order. So reduced viral shedding reduced viral binding ability to intestinal cells, increased binding ability, increased viral stability at higher temperatures, and even complete inactivation and bacterial capture of the virus. The effects really run the gamut from seemingly symbiotic co-infection to direct combat, essentially. Now we're going to step into my own conjecture and just my own thoughts on the topic, a new segment called Speculate with Shane. We're not actually going to call it that, but whatever. So I think that these inter-kingdom interactions are immensely variable and manifold throughout every genus and species and have evolved over the last two billion years as some of the most resilient and adaptable organisms have vied for control of resources and facilitated advancements to succeed over their enemies. Viruses have been there all along, exerting their own effect on the other kingdoms and vice versa, and after two billion years, there are untold avenues to be investigated. I think that it is highly likely that we will, over the next few years, discover even more antiviral properties of bacteria, fungi, and parasites, and be able to exploit these properties for our benefit. I think it's just around the corner. The FDA has a statement on their website cautioning the use of ivermectin and advising people not to seek it out. And I really, I totally get their, their concern after people completely misunderstood and mishandled the hydroxychloroquine situation. Similarly to chloroquine, ivermectin is available in animal formulations for cows, horses, pigs, even dogs. Consumers aren't aware that these products are not formulated for human consumption and may be unsafe doses or have inactive ingredients that are not tested for humans to take. Ivermectin is not a cure for COVID, but I think that after more research and with supportive care, it could be an effective treatment alternative. More research is required, and I wouldn't think there'd be any benefit from saying it at this point, but get vaccinated. Just do it. You have a responsibility as a human being to show this shred of empathy and community and do your part. You could save your own life or even the life of somebody else. I think there's major hesitancy from the medical community at large, including myself at first, because at first glance, this looks like another hydroxychloroquine, an ultimately useless treatment that was falsely touted as the cure for COVID and actually resulted in unnecessary deaths. There's a lot of parallels between HCQ and ivermectin, but ivermectin definitely deserves a look. I think it's got some potential, and in times like this, we need a little hope.
Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.